Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Tony Hiss. Tony, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, and thank you for uh, letting me into your home, which turns out the person who introduced us was prior guest Vincent Stanley. Oh. All the way out in California, and we live like two blocks away from each other. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And uh, I really want to talk about your book, Rescuing the Planet. Um, but I can't help but first start because I was looking a bit at your book, Experience of Place, and I saw it was endorsed by Jane Jacobs. And I have to start by asking about I, it. looks like you met her and spent time with her. Yeah, I got to meet Jane. Can I indulge myself in asking how... I mean, for those who don't know, living in Greenwich Village means uh, you've read Death and Life of Great American Cities and and Power Broker. And Jane Jacobs is, is, is a hero? Definitely. I mean, yeah, a, a major figure of, of saving Greenwich Village from becoming a a highway or an on-ramp to a highway. And uh, how'd you interact with her? And what, do you mind if we start there? No, not at all. Um, she got in touch with me after I'd written something. Mm -hmm. uh, she was, of course, in Toronto at that point. She'd left uh -huh. the village because she didn't want her sons drafted in the war. So That's she went up to Canada, the Vietnam War, uh, still think of it as the war. Uh -huh. uh, and she was just so sweet, such a nice, decent, lovable person. Uh, very ordinary. Got to visit her in her home. Her husband was a hospital architect. And just, she sort of recreated the warmth of her Greenwich Village living room kitchen. And there was sort of people gathered around the stove. And it was... Everything was just sort of what you always hope to find in a household. Mm -hmm. And so unassuming, and but so bright, and just always thinking, always coming up with new ideas. And I mean, she wrote that everything she knew in life, everything she learned in school, she learned in kindergarten. But, but she had a wealth of thought and imagination. And... She wasn't hampered by academic constraints or what you ought to think or what you ought to be thinking about. So it was a joy to meet her, and we stayed in touch. Did you meet her here or there? In Met her there, actually, okay, so before we she corresponded. Before that, but I mean, I didn't see her in the flesh until I got to meet her in Toronto. Did you have a sense of, of someone who changed culture so much? I the, I mean, I think of her as, as really making a statement or making changing things. I mean, there's a path of, of just highways and, you know, the city is for transporting things around. Well, two things. One, she had a sense of why communities work. Her, you know, eyes on the street idea that mm -hmm. people in low-rise buildings are in touch with what's going on outside and... That extends the street community up into the buildings, uh, and that that's creates, you know, these sort of magnetic poles uh, of presence. So that, on the one hand, was what was being threatened. On the other hand, she was just some a vigorous person. She just one of those people who said, "No, it's not going to happen. We're not going to let you ruin this." Uh, even though Robert Moses was still the great, uh, you know 
monster in the sky, the great grim reaper that everyone was scared of. And she got the best of him. Mm-hmm. So just by saying no, and that sort of was the turning point in terms of his beginning to lose his superpowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, Washington Square Park stayed uninterrupted. He had already, his other big idea was to extend Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park. And he got West Broadway below the park, uh, widened, and so it was all ready to be connected up to Fifth Avenue above the park. And and then a four or six lane or eight lane highway would have swooshed through the park leaving little remnants on either side mm-hmm. that without any obvious way of connect of getting from one to the other. So that never happened. Uh, and it happened in stages. First, they got the traffic banned from the park because there had been a buses come in to turn around and then mm-hmm. and then one thing led to the next. So she and, and her cheerfulness was part of her strength as a leader. Just saying, of course, this isn't going to happen. This is important. This is New York. This is what, why we're here. Uh, yeah, the one of the things that stands out for me of her is, well, I'm looking for role models. I'm looking for people who stood up to uh, a cultural steamroller that everyone just kind of says, well, I guess that's the way it's got to be, which is how things feel with the market, the environment. And listeners of the podcast know that I, I, I mean, I feel like we've, maybe this is too much to start with. This may be too heavy to start the podcast with, but I, I feel like uh, certainly there are individuals that this does not apply to and organizations that the following does not apply to. But for American culture generally, I feel like we've abandoned do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we've abandoned live and let live. And in, we replaced it with a capitulation and a resignation and uh, an abdication. And I feel like it would, it's easy to feel that way and just say, well, I can't do anything, so it's not my fault, and I'll just you know, put my kids through college. And I feel like she is someone who is opposite of that. She could have easily rolled over. Well, I think she, from what you said about her, I don't think she could have, but I mean, someone, her next-door neighbor could have. And might have. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But I think she'd sort of been keeping her eyes open for quite a long time, you know, because this sort of happened gradually. Part of it was just the idea that uh, most people signed on to that we wanted these great big highways Mm -hmm. because that was going to be the future. And that goes back even to the 1938-39 World's Fair in Queens. Robert Moses put on, where GM had the pavilion of the world of the future. And you saw these tall apartment buildings with highways threading through them. And you got to ride on a little ride past them. And everyone thought, oh, wow, look at that exciting new future. Uh, And meanwhile, the railroads uh, just rolled over and played dead. So there was no alternative. And, And these interstates came into being. And they weren't supposed to go through cities. That was the original idea. In fact, President Eisenhower was very dismayed when he realized they were going through cities. 
because of course the the rationale for them was that it was a national security issue. This was the way we would evacuate cities in the event of a nuclear war, mm-hmm. and our troops could move on, on these highways. And all nonsense, of course, but uh, but people had bought into the post-war dream, and already things like the suburbs were happening. Levittown took a beautiful area in Long Island called the Hempstead Plains, Mm -hmm. a native grassland, and plunked down, you know, hundreds of... uh, Identical houses. Identical houses, Mm -hmm. yes. In some ways, this was GI housing. Of course, it was segregated housing. So all of these things were sort of stewing together and built into each other. And then there was the whole urban renewal idea, which basically meant, you know, African-American displacement uh, and perfectly viable communities like the West Village were considered slums and and a blight and got condemned and communities got ripped apart. So she was ahead of her time in terms of the people standing up to this and saying, wait a minute, this isn't giving us what we thought we were going to get. The whole effect of all of this was to isolate people, too, rather than bring them together. Not intentionally, but that's what the effect was. Yes, that's right. Because they now, instead of living in the same building with people, they were separated, and they had to get into their cars by themselves and go into the city to go to a job. And um, suddenly, the commute... Uh, was this force in the day taking longer and longer and longer. Sorry, so, so what we're living in, in some ways, is the tail end of, of that. Uh, today I'm talking about. It. Yeah, it, I mean, tail end or even acceleration. Well, let, I mean, E.O. Wilson is another... Okay, so so let's get to your book. E.O. <laughs> okay. uh, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the earth and it's uh i mean it's it's a wonderful read of just to learn about the characters and the stories but there's also um i believe eo wilson came up with the concept of protecting half the earth well i came up with the phrase half earth in conversation with him uh then he went off and ran with it and, and wrote a book called half earth uh but he certainly is the person who was thinking large uh, and and I think at first it was sort of just a challenge to people to begin to think at a different scale it was what the business community would have called a BHAG a big hairy audacious goal mm-hmm. someone who came up with the idea that businesses needed to think beyond the next quarter of a year and needed to set goals that weren't too easy to achieve because then why bother? And they weren't too hard to achieve because then why bother? So it had to be sort of a Goldilocks, something in the middle. And the classic example is supposed to be President Kennedy saying, let's put a man on the moon in in the 60s. And it happened. So, uh, So he thought by throwing out the idea of a half of Earth suddenly conservationists would begin to think bigger because 
the first National Park Yellowstone. We're actually it's now celebrating the 150th anniversary of the very first national park in the world. Uh, it was 1872. Since then, we've put aside about 15% of the planet, the land on the planet, as conservation areas. You know, some better protected than others. But the challenge then if, is to get from zero to 15, if it took us 150 years, to get from 15 to 30 to 50 in 10, 20, 30 years, we've never taken on something like that before. So that is an enormous challenge, and it speaks, or it is trying to speak to everyone, because it's about the awareness, where are we, and what else is going on, and what other species are here. And You know, reports are now saying that a, a million species of plants and animals are at risk of extinction in the near future. I think that's what probably got me started on this book, just my sense of the, of the plight of the animals, uh, the pain and the plight of the animals. But the book, you started out by talking about one I wrote that got me to know Jane Jacobs, The Experience of Place. I was always interested in, that was about how we're affected by our physical surroundings and how the way we arrange space also uh, in many ways instructs us on how to behave to it, with each other, whether it creates warm, friendly environments or it, it tends to separate us and drive us apart. Uh, so I was trying to apply the same kind of thinking to the planet as a whole. And what really became interesting for me is the idea, well, we naturally as being subject to gravity, think of ourselves as living on the surface of the planet. But in fact, we live within this strange shape called the biosphere, uh, the container, as far as we know, of all living beings, creatures anywhere in the universe. And it's we're actually not on the top of the biosphere. The bio, in the first place, it's not a sphere. <laughs> it's a coating on a sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is life below us, the so-called deep biosphere, and there is life above us, up in the air. So it's immeasurably broad side to side because it goes all the way around the world. It's quite ancient. It's really almost as ancient as the planet. But this, I got interested in a man named Vladimir Ivanovich Vernadsky, a Russian biogeochemist who wrote the first major treatise about the biosphere. Biosfera came out in 1926, 2,000 copies. Uh, he is revered equally, interestingly, in Russia and the Ukraine and considered a Darwin, uh, Einstein but still very little known here in the West. Anyway, he sort of gave us the idea that in addition to this ancientness and this abundance and this hugeness, the biosphere has this third dimension from top to bottom, and that is an incredibly small dimension, very short. There's this thinness. Most species 
live between the top of Mount Everest, which is about five miles over our heads, and the bottom of the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, the Mariana Trench. And that's about six miles below us. So 12 and a half miles or so is the, is the depth of the biosphere. As some English physicists pointed out, if it was flat dimension and not vertical, you could easily drive across it in less than 20 minutes. So That's less than Manhattan, or about Manhattan. About like, Manhattan, yeah. yeah. So there, there's this thinness <laughs> that we have to make sure it doesn't get any thinner. Well, that's an obligation we haven't given much thought to. And there's also this fact that it, instead of being on the biosphere, we're within it. It surrounds us. Uh, so there's this withinness, another dimension we haven't given much thought to, but is very sobering uh, because all of life is contained here. And, and then there's, beyond that, science is suddenly uh, having a series of aha moments in terms of what is the nature of these other creatures that surround us. It started with realizing, you know, Diane Fossey, that gorillas are sensitive, intelligent creatures. Then came the idea, more outlandish idea, that octopuses uh, are creatures with brains and feelings. And this summer, a German scientist named Chitka, Lars Chitka, wrote a book called The Mind of a Bee. And... Bees have brains that are no bigger than poppy seeds. And he said bees have this rich inner life. Uh, so, as a reviewer of that book said, it looks like it's a profoundly upsetting to our usual way of thinking, but it looks like we live in this vast sea of sentience. So suddenly we have a different idea of what our responsibility to the rest of life it is. It isn't just something that's barely alive, or idiotic, or robotic, or mechanical. It, too, has its own awareness and its own uh, requirements. So suddenly it, it dawned on me, that means there's really no such thing as an empty piece of land or a vacant lot. It may not have buildings on it, but it's teeming with life. And if we need to add some human purposes to it. We have to learn how to do it in a kind of all-species design so that we're not simply shouldering aside the, the life that's already there. Uh, we have to work in partnership with it. Man, so much to follow up on there. The, I'm gonna, what you just said there at the end, the, the more that I decrease my power consumption, the, the more that I decrease my pollution, the more that I feel, the more that I learn about indigenous cultures. And I've had on the podcast people who have lived among the Kogi in Colombia, the uh, Tsumane in Bolivia, the Hadza in Tanzania, the San in Southern Africa, um, more than that. And Great. I think what you said applies to us and our cultural ancestors, not to them. 
or maybe at the very, very beginning it did to them and they figured things out like 50,000 years ago and then have a culture that does not look at an empty, uh, uh, I'm putting air quotes, empty yeah. plot of land and say it's just empty. I mean, one of the things, I forget it was in your book or somewhere else that talked about how the most fertile places are where we live. But that's now, they are now the most paved over places. And we're increasingly squeezing out anything we can from, like now we're putting, uh, I was reading about uh, how we're, we're putting giant solar farms in the desert. The desert's not empty, devoid of life. There's good point. turtles going across that, that place. And, you know, when I say that, I mean, that's a, a placeholder for lots of things going on. Exactly. But as if we didn't um, literally squeeze the life out of, not literally, but figuratively squeeze the life out of places that were rich and verdant and fertile. Now we're going to the places that, like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Well, that is one of the problems with the Green New Deal. We've got these wonderful 21st century goals and aspirations, but we're using the same old uh, 19th century get-out-of-the-way techniques to get there. Uh, as you said, putting vast solar farms in on the so-called desert, deserted desert, um, building huge semiconductor factories uh, on other great enormous plots of land that are 17 football fields or whatever in size, uh, which means we have to then build highways to bring trucks to them, to bring them supplies and take things away, which, and on and on and on. So uh, we've got to reconfigure uh, the new in order to make it less like the old, and then it's going to require oh, we don't need so many of the old minerals, but now we need new minerals. We need lithium for the batteries and huge open pit mines to get the lithium out instead of the coal out. So uh, not such a wonderful advance there. But you're talking about indigenous peoples, and it was my good fortune to meet up with some of them in the north of the Northwest Territories, way up near the top of the of the planet. And... And in the midst of the boreal forest, which is this extraordinary, incredible, uh, in, almost entirely intact landscape and enormous in size because it stretches from Alaska all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. That's at least a thousand miles from top to bottom. And although the Canadians were, as we were down here, unspeakable in the treatment of their indigenous people called the First Nations up there, they didn't do what we did, which was kick them off the land. They're still in place. And suddenly the uh, Canadian government, which is now trying to be more green, is turning to its indigenous citizens and saying, uh, we need you to create a whole new set of system, network of national parks that you will be the rangers of and the stewards of the mucklucks and moccasins on the ground instead of the boots on the ground. And that's going to give us enough protected land to help us meet the goal of, what are they, their goal at the moment is 25% of the country by 2025 and 30 by 30. So suddenly they, just this week, because we're talking now in the early December, just before the Great Biodiversity Conference gets underway in Montreal, 
Prime Minister Trudeau who announced the other day that they're going to spend $800 million Canadian, which is almost half a million, half a billion dollars U.S., to create this network of indigenous protected areas, as they're being called, the size of two and a half Californias. Well, that's big. That's thinking big. Yeah, this is something that uh, one of my biggest takeaways from your book, and there's a quote, and I'm half inclined to pick up the book to search for it, but it, someone's saying, uh, why don't we ask for what we fucking want? <laughs> oh, that was Harvey Locke. Uh-huh. Harvey Locke, well, one of the heroes of my book is Benton Mackay, who was the father of the Appalachian Trail mm -hmm. here in the East, who, when he graduated from college in the year 1900, celebrated by bushwhacking his way with a friend up to the top of a mountain in Vermont, because uh, there were no trails then. And they shinnied up the tallest trees they could find, and they were swaying there. And as they swayed there, he, had, he was overcome by what he later called a planetary feeling, that he was in a single place that stretched all along the tops of the Appalachian Mountains from Maine all the way down to Georgia. Uh, suddenly he was thinking at that scale. And, it, and really that's the inspiration for the Appalachian Trail, although he didn't write up the idea for another 20 years. And when he did, it, was, it caught people's imagination so that within the next 12 years, a trail connecting the mountaintops from Maine to Georgia had, had come into being, and it was almost entirely constructed by volunteers on their weekends or vacations. Probably the largest infrastructure project in the history of man done by voluntary labor. Well, that was, he was the inspiration and for the, and not just, he, he was thinking not just about that trail along the peaks, but all along the whole range, what he called the Appalachian Rail, realm, a much larger entity. In the 1990s, a Canadian lawyer and activist named Harvey Locke had the same experience in the Rockies. Uh, near, I think it was, I forget which park it was in Canada, near Banff probably, that he was in a single place that stretched at least from Yellowstone all the way north to the top of the northwest, top of the Yukon. Um, Yellowstone to Yukon, he called it, Y to Y. And that he put together a coalition of people, anyone who lived within that realm, which later was extended uh, south of Yellowstone, down into Mexico, to think about how do we protect this landscape. And it's a coalition of government people, but private landowners, ranchers, farmers, townspeople. And they've managed to, create, to protect about 18% of that landscape in the last 25 years, which is pretty good going. So it, Harvey was at a meeting, yes, in the boreal forest, where they were timidly thinking, this was the turn of the century. Oh, we need to protect this place. What are we going to... Should we ask for at least 30% of it? Won't that scare people away? And Harvey said, the guy who told me the story remembered it because he, vividly because he said it was back in the days when we still had blackboards to, uh, to put our notes on. And Harvey thumped the blackboard and said, why don't we ask for what we fucking need? At least half of it. And 
Boreal is at least 85 to 90 percent intact, so now they would like to create, establish a way of, create, of protecting a whole lot more than just 50 percent of the boreal. Yeah, you said earlier that the, the fraction was a balance of different things, but I feel like there was also, I mean, early on, uh, EO, I guess, did a calculation or someone did the calculation that said that if we protect, let me see if I can remember it, if we can protect uh, 15% of the land, we might protect 25% of the species, but if we protect 50, it's upward of 90% of the species. Yeah, that was Wilson and his colleagues, because... Um, the science behind 50% is, on the one hand, meticulous field studies of different creatures and their habitats. Because the, reason, the connection between land and species survival is that creatures need a certain proportion of their original habitat to stay, stay stable and not go extinct. And some very sensitive species seem to need up to 75%, others more tolerant maybe may need only 25%, but striking a balance, 50%. That's on the one hand, that set of data. And then through biogeography, which Wilson helped got, get going, the whole idea of how many species can inhabit a certain amount of land, we're able to calculate some futures. And that's where this idea that if we stayed at 15%, the amount of land we've protected so far, Eventually, only about 25% of the other species can survive. Whereas, if we bump it up to 50%, uh, then 85 to 90% can survive. Not everything, but close to everything. I think you also said that what we have developed so far is something like 40%. So there's a leeway. Yeah, it isn't. And a biologist named Eric Dinnerstein uh, several years ago wrote a paper about a global safety net in terms of how much we would need to protect to keep going. And he said, it's not as bad as you think. If there's, take the 15% as the base. Indigenous peoples around the world inhabit wild land, still do. That's about 12% of the globe. 15 plus 12 is 27%. That means we really only have to protect another 23% if we empower the indigenous and give them rights to their land and ask them to do what the Canadians are asking them to do, be the stewards. Then we only have to think about getting 23% of the land more protected. And a paper I was just reading a couple of weeks ago about called how much land do we actually need to set aside uh, by, I forget how many, was it 19 scientists from six different countries, something like that, uh, suggested at least 44%. But then they said, well, we're only thinking about mammals, vertebrates, and if you added in fungi and other realms of life, it might well, and plants in general, uh, it might well shoot up to 50% or higher. So... It looks pretty clear that this is not an arbitrary number. Yeah, and actually, the stories that you told, and I got to tell people that when you talked about the boreal forest, you talked about Yosemite. Like, these were all stories that come alive in the book, and uh, it's it's a book of science, but it's a book of. I mean, you open the book with uh, Thoreau. I think it was like the opening sentence was, um, "What I read was this is a balance between wildness 
and people. And it's not one. It's not the other. These aren't separable. I mean, I guess we could have wildness without people, but I don't think we can have people without wildness. Well, that was part of the original Western model that you needed wildness without people. We kicked Native Americans off the lands that became Yellowstone and Yosemite mm-hmm. to make them purer. Uh, the Canadians didn't make that mistake. Uh, actually, they did originally. They had uh, the schools. They, they kicked people out of Banff when it was made a national park. Um, but they didn't try to kick them out of the rest of the land. So that's what makes it such a very exciting time to be, because I found, and, and I had the privilege of traveling all around North America, that so many people are at work uh, protecting things, and many of them not aware of what the others that I was talking to are doing, but just taking it upon themselves to get started. And I also was relieved in a way to feel to under to get to understand that some people have had this kind of thinking for quite a while, not just Benton Mackay or Harvey Locke, but a distinguished landscape architect, now not very well known if at all, named Warren Manning, who was a pupil of Frederick Law Olmsted's, another great figure in our history. Uh, in 1918, wrote a national plan, just almost for the hell of it, because he had jobs all over the country, but they sort of dried up during World War I. So he put his staff to work to create this national plan, and he suggested putting aside at least 30% of the landscape. And then uh, a guy named Shelford in the 30s, who was an ecologist, came up with the idea that we needed to at least protect about 30% of each ecosystem so it wouldn't disappear. And he came up with the idea, which later became very influential, that you needed a core area of pretty much wildland where there'd be not much human interaction surrounded by a buffer area, uh, which would have more human interaction. And that became the basis for the uh, Biosphere Reserve that UNESCO started setting up in the 1970s. There are hundreds of them now. But a brilliant biologist named Reed Noss, another guy I got to know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) was very fortunate to meet so many wonderful people, uh, had the idea that you could uncurl the buffer zones. And they didn't have to just stay surrounding an area. They could start leading off into the countryside and meet up with a tendril coming from another core area. And that way you could connect up a whole state, a wild landscape pervading a whole state, which he did for the state of Florida. And believe it or not, in the year 2022, this idea is now officially endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis and a unanimous vote of the Florida legislature, both parties, uh, as part of the heritage and legacy and permanent feature of Florida. And they've predicted almost 30% of that state. You wouldn't know it. A thousand people a day move to Florida, but they've got something else going on too. Other states have yet to create a similar model. but I feel like uh, in order to allow indigenous people to keep their land and for us ideally to learn from them. I mean, if they've been living somewhere for 10, 50, 100,000 years, 
presumably they, they figured out how to live in, in balance with nature and sustainably. And that requires humility on our part. And I feel like we're not very good at humility with respect to nature. We tend to feel like we know the answers before we start. We, when I mean, I hope I, well, I should probably define what I mean by we, but, you know, our culture. Uh, yeah, I think we is accurate enough. But, but the odd thing is that just by uh, retuning our awareness, we begin to take in aspects that we had neglected and and that's and we're definitely moving beyond the kind of thinking so-called rational thinking that we thought we were founded on people like Descartes who called uh animals just uh what was it thinking or sort of half alive beasts uh the very science that he set in motion is now extending itself to become aware of of the awareness of other creatures. So it's an interesting moment. Uh, we do have this long history of stubbornly insisting that things are the way we think they are, but we're beginning to see that they're not the way we think we are. And I think it's because we're at this moment where we need to... The biosphere is calling out to us, and it needs our help. Uh, and people are responding to it. And people you wouldn't think were responding to it. One of the people I liked the most when I was writing the book was M.C. Davis down in the panhandle of Florida, who was a multimillionaire commodities broker, thought of himself as an old-timey dirt road panhandle guy, and actually made his first money playing poker, uh, but had no thought about the environment as such, as such, until one day he was caught in a traffic jam on I-4 and was furious at just being cooped up in his car, saw a sign on a high school billboard that said, Black Bear Seminar. He thought anything's better than this. He peeled off, went inside. He said there were a couple of drunk sleeping it off. There was a Canadian couple looking for day-old donuts. There was a local politician who thought he'd find an audience but hadn't. But up on a dais were two women talking about Florida black bears, a subpopulation of black bear species, and how they were endangered because their habitat, the so-called longleaf pine forest, which had been the great forest of the southeast, uh, was disappearing. And 97% gone, basically chopped down after the Civil War uh, in order to uh, make money for the landowners who no longer had slave labor to depend on. Uh, it's the reason why uh, Scarlett O'Hara said, we'll never go hungry again. They started chopping down the longleaf pine forest. So MC sort of suddenly thought, my God, Look at this, he said. And the next day, he gave these two ladies enough money for their uh, nonprofit to get, keep going for another two years. He said, which almost scared them because no one had ever done this before. And they said, what are you looking for? And he said, well, I need a list from you of the 100 most important bi uh, books on biology and, and uh, conservation because I've never studied this stuff. And he took a year off 
and just read all these books. And then he thought, what can I do? Well, he started buying up played out peanut farms uh, and and began to recreate a longleaf pine forest on 51,000 acres. When I got to meet him, he was a friend of Ed Wilson's. Uh, he said it still looked pretty scruffy, although he was spending half a million dollars a year planting pine trees and half a million dollars a year uh, just getting the ground ready for them. He said, well, we're only in year 13 of a 300-year project. Come back again. Uh, he's gone now, but he endowed this project so it can uh, it can live for another 300 years uh, or more and become a permanent part of the landscape. And it's adjacent to Eglin Air Force Base down there, which is an enormous property that had actually had been a national forest and then was made a military installation during World War II. And they've got some many acres of longleaf pine that they're actually doing a pretty decent job of protecting. So his idea was that his land could be one of these Reed-Noss connectors uh, from Eglin to stretching east uh, and begin to re recreate this extraordinary landscape. Now, your, your books before this, I, I've only read this book, but I'm reading a, a genuine, sincere passion that did you know that it was coming? Did you? Do I read you right? And how did? Is there a story of, of you? Were you always like this, or were you? And and I mean, it sounds like the. It sounds like all these people you met in the past were, were was preparing for the book or writing the book, but maybe it goes back farther. Or, or I mean, because I think a lot of people really want to get this feeling of connection and passion to act. Well. I don't know. I mean, my parents were avid bird watchers. Uh, and among bird watchers, there's this phrase, spark bird, some bird that grabbed hold of their attention at some point in their life and wouldn't let go and changed them into being people who were passionate about the environment. Uh, it doesn't have to be a bird, of course. So I was always interested in how we respond to things. Uh, and clearly, here was a, a situation uh, where our response was critical to uh, to what can be done and what needed to be done. And you, when, whenever you start, I think journalists think when they start a project, if this idea occurs to me, I'm not that smart. It must have occurred to people who are smarter than I am. I just have to find them. And then you go out and you look for them, and there they are. So that was part of it. And then I, I did have the another rare privilege of getting to know Ed Wilson while I was working on the book. And he was very warm and welcoming. Uh, he was a lot of fun, too. Uh, All right. If you're going to say the word sparkbird, you're going to have to share your sparkbird. Well, for me, uh, I sort of took in what all the birds my parents adored. Uh, my dad was from Baltimore, and so Baltimore Oriole has always been a bird I liked a lot. And cardinals, you couldn't escape because they're vivid red. And my dad was so proud of the fact that he had once seen a prothonotary warbler, which was a rare bird in suburban Maryland. Uh, so I was already primed. Uh, you know, Wilson wrote a book called Biophilia, 
saying we have an innate response, positive response to the nature around us. And kids grow up thinking about bears and elephants and how wonderful it is to live in a world with rhinoceroses and blue whales. Uh, so it's in there. It's in all of us. Uh, so it, that's why it's really, I don't think it's that hard to tap into. Uh, even though it it's using a part of our mind, and that's something I've been interested in throughout three books, four books. <laughs> part of our mind that is tends to be ignored by our academic training. We grow up hearing that there are two ways of using the mind consciously. One is daydreaming, which is bad because it's disconnecting from the world. And the other is closely uh, honed attention, uh, very fine on specifics. And that's something that needs a lot of training. And we, it's why we have to go to school from kindergarten up through at least high school and pro probably college and maybe graduate school. But there's this whole other way of using the mind, which just responds on all cylinders, on all, in all uh, senses simultaneously, that's reaching out to and receptive to a whole lot of other inputs all the time. And and that's something I found at work in the people that, that I got to talk to. Yeah, I would say not just we have a biophilia. I haven't read that book, so uh, I met I met him. He gave a talk at the New York Academy of Sciences. I don't know, five or ten years ago that I saw. He's a great talker. Yeah. And I think also the absence of the connection to nature is a deep wound that we most of us don't know that we're missing it. I think that before maybe a hundred years ago, I think almost everyone who ever lived was a short walk to solitude among the trees or to a beach with the waves lapping and no sound of traffic nearby, no airplanes overhead. And now billions have zero access to that, or virtually zero, including us. I mean, for us, I mean, we have like tree-lined streets, and you have a wonderful array of plants in this in this apartment. Uh, but it's not solitude in the forest. It's not. It's, uh, it's not. But I think one of the hopeful things, Josh, is that uh, even without that, we can make progress because. One of the movements that seems to be galloping ahead is this so-called uh, homegrown national park that a guy named Doug Tallamy has written about, which is that if we... turns out that the third largest crop grown in this country is lawns, almost as much, almost as big as corn or wheat. Millions and millions of acres of lawn, but they're very uh, barren homogenized landscapes that need a lot of fertilizer and pesticide. And they don't offer much of a home for the native species and the pollinators. But if we take even a strip of that mm -hmm. and convert it to native plants, suddenly it's in... There are clouds of bees and, uh, and moths who can pollinate from plant to plant. And what are called pollinator pathways are springing up all throughout... Uh, whole New York City suburban area become a great thing suddenly. Uh, so even if you're still living in your suburban house and there's traffic, you're hearing traffic and the still light pollution that's keeping you from see, seeing the Milky Way, 
you've got something living going on right in front of you that you can help uh, further. So I, th I think that's a wonderful way station on, on the way towards uh, getting people into deeper kinds of wild landscapes. Yeah, it makes me feel like I keep bringing up things that feel like uh, defeatist and you keep coming back with like not I don't feel like you're even retorting you're just you're just saying well look at what's going on look at these things that we are doing I mean you're making me think about how I want to put on the roof I got like bring the solar panels up to my roof not permanently but I got to see it. I'm going to see if I can do that but also I want to put some plants up there I really want I mean my building doesn't have a great sense of community it's it's I think 15 stories maybe 100 units and people don't really know each other but I really want to have a host a potluck in our lobby and just say, this was grown on our roof. Have a bite. And I think that will activate people. And I think... That's a great idea. There's something that... I, a couple of weeks ago, I went up to Central Park to meet a friend. And uh, for I had a persimmon because I was at the store and they were in season. And, uh, and I also had a, a pair, a couple pieces of fruit and a kohlrabi. And I really love these things. And so I made this little joke. I said, I, like, I cut up the persimmon and gave her half. And she's biting into it. And I'm saying, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Give me that back. It's too good for me to give it away. And, you know, we were joking about it. But there's something about there's a, I didn't want to enjoy that on my own. It's painful to eat really delicious food when it's, I mean, Doritos, I don't know. I don't call it delicious. I don't call it food either. It's doof. But um, to eat a persimmon on my own is like, Hard. I want it. I have to call someone up and be like, "This persimmon is really good." And so there's a mix of generosity that overrides. I want it all myself. I think something about nature is like that. We it's it, we can't just be. We want to share it. We want to be generous with it. I I don't know how to describe that feeling. It's like I want you to have it, even though I really want it to myself. <laughs> it would be harder to keep it to myself than not. That's a nice feeling. Yeah, I think reciprocity is built into us. Yeah, fortunately. Yeah, well, you're a neighbor, so if I, if I do pull this off, then I'll have to invite you over. And, I'll be delighted. Yeah, actually, when I I was trying to think of my spark bird, and I mean, what comes to mind is I had a big shift when I uh, when I first started. I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food, and you at the time it. you made it. Oh yeah, not only did I make it, but I made it two and a half weeks. Wow, and then, and then since then it's been not zero but minimal. And I joined at the time of CSA, so I got all these vegetables coming in that I didn't know. I didn't know until I got them what I was going to get. And my rules, nothing gets thrown away. As it turns out, this farm, it's the food, the flavor is just amazing. Where's I, the farm? Well, the farm is, is north of Poughkeepsie, in Dutchess uh, County, or I forget. I, I rode my bike up there. Uh, so it's 125 miles. I rode it 75 miles and then um, camped out. Didn't quite make it the whole way. I met, my mom lives not too far from this, so she picked me up and went the rest of the way because they have a potluck every summer. Ah. And so it's right off the Hudson River by Hudson, New York. Oh, that's a nice area. And according to them, the farmers, they used to be that farm used to be the bottom of some lake that let, dropped a lot of sediment there that makes the food better, like good, great soil. And... So I started cooking from scratch for the first time. And at first it was just steaming, steaming vegetables. That's what I could do. I mean, I knew how to, up until then, open a box of pasta, 
open a jar of red sauce, maybe saute it with some garlic and onions and broccoli. But that was cooking. Now it's all from scratch. And what I used to, what I would have before thought, oh, that's that costs too much money. It takes too much time. Now it's the opposite. It's it saves time. It saves money and it brings people over. And so you're doing it as a stove. That's legitimate, right? Uh, I use a pressure cooker. Pressure cooker. Yeah, the pressure cooker is. Yeah, that uses the least energy, as far as I can tell, and it cooks the fastest. But you didn't disconnect the gas. I have not used a stove. I mean, if if you look at my kitchen, where the, there is a stove and it is connected, but it's where I store all my mason jars and <laughs> and I, like I put something on top of the burners to put stuff on. So I haven't used that in years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I still have these cast iron griddles and because I can't get rid of them. Yeah, sure. But I don't know if I'll ever use them. In any case, there was this shift of when I started that, if I went to a farmer's market, I knew maybe 10% of what was there. And most of it, I was like, chard, spinach, kale, looked all the same to me. It was just some green leafy thing I didn't know what to do with. Right. Now it's the opposite. It's maybe 10%. I don't know what it is. And that's what I seek out because I want to, you know, um, stinging nettles. What's that? And what do you make with a stinging nettle? Well, I probably I made some kind of salad, I think, but it wasn't really that good. <laughs> Doesn't sound good. When I when I was visiting uh, my mom once, we at a different local farm type thing. We got fiddlehead ferns, and I found out cook them. They're poisonous if you don't cook. Or they really make you woozy if you don't cook them. So I didn't cook them, and now I know. That, that was always a delicacy in New England yeah. in the old days. Yeah, I was just watching. I was just watching a video about the Hansa, and it was some Westerner, an American, with them. And first, do you know how to get the honey? So the Hansa. This wasn't in this video, but in other videos, that they uh, there's some kind of bird. It's the only known symbiosis between, I think, birds and mammals, or birds and primates. So there's a bird that it sees the bees there don't form um, hives. They live in like the, the crook of, a, of a branches of trees that you can't see from below. The bird can see from above, and when it sees it, it whistles. It, it does its song that the humans whistle back, and it guides the bird guides them to the tree. They, they have to climb all the way up to the tree with a, a smoky uh, brand, a, a torch because the smoke gets the bees uh, catatonic so they can get the honey and the honeycomb. So the people eat the honey. And they give the honeycomb to the bird, which the bird eats. So it's a symbiosis. It's not uh, not just a one-way thing. Yeah. And this guy and, – and there's also lots of grubs. So apparently it's not just pure sugar. It's There's some um, other nutrition in it, but they've been doing this forever. And the guy tasted it. And he's like – at first he had a bite. That there wasn't much honey in it. He's like, this is – the guy's like, this is just eating baby uh, baby bees. But then later he got a piece that had honey in it. And he said he was like he was blown away. He was like, I'm, "This is the best honey I've ever tasted." And I was like, "Oh, I bet it tastes really good." I'll bet it does. And before we wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, or any message to the listeners? I hope you'll come back for another episode. I would love to. Um, I think you brought up a, a great number of things that made me think and stretched me, and I appreciate it. Oh. But all I would emphasize is that 
although this is a dire time, it's also a time of great hope and great activity because so many people are getting involved uh, and finding things to do where they are or in large landscapes uh, either near them or far away from them. And it's going to take not just a village, but a planet <laughs> to save the planet, but people are working on it. And so it makes it an exciting time to be alive. Now, I said I was to wrap up, but now that you said that, it sounds like you are one of these people, and it sounds like the book was to connect a lot of these people. Are you, is there another book on the way? Is there, uh, are, are the connections, are the people that you, have you connected to people? And is there, is there a follow-up to the? You know, it's a slow process. Uh, so still in the, still in the process of trying to find people uh, who will get some honey out of this book. Uh, and that's why it's a great privilege and pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, Tony Hiss, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.